Good morning. Cup of coffee in hand. Hopefully you've got your Bible ready as well. We're going to go ahead and invite you to open to Matthew 24. Let me take a swig here real quick. So we're going to go ahead and continue our study in the Olivet Discourse. This, of course, has been inserted into our larger study on eschatology and how I think things will unfold in the days ahead. And we've talked again about the rapture of the church, uh, the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 that is coming as well. Once again, I do think that that battle that Ezekiel describes is different than what is described after the millennium, taking place after the millennium, uh, when Satan is loosed. And he brings together Gog and Magog and the, and the nations that are still in rebellion against Christ or become in rebellion against Christ, led by Satan after the millennial kingdom period, and ultimately come against Christ in Jerusalem at that time. Gog and Magog are mentioned in, uh, in, that, in that description, but I think that is a separate and later uh, event than what is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's sometimes confusion about that, and, and oftentimes those two things are blended because of the naming of the leader of, of that uh, of that um, of that um, uh, rebellious rebellion. And so, that being said, um, we have also then from that point we described a little bit about how I think that the combination of the rapture and the, the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, will have a lot to do with the world's readiness to receive Antichrist when he comes. And then from there, we moved into the Olivet Discourse. Seemed like a good place to insert that because the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' answer to some questions from the disciples regarding the coming destruction of the temple, which ultimately took place in AD 70. Uh, Luke is the only one who actually includes the answer to that question uh, in, in his recording of this discussion that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, Matthew and Mark only include the answer to the other questions revolving around Christ's return and the end of the age. And so he goes on to answer those questions here, and we're looking at it in Matthew 24. And we got as far as verse 22 last time. Today I'd like to go through verse 28. I am going to start in verse 21 and make our way through this passage here. So if you got your Bible ready to roll, uh, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at Matthew 24, uh, starting in verse 21. For then, or during that period of time, there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Now, this whole discourse is essentially Jesus telling, uh, certainly his disciples and all of the readers in history ever since, well in advance, these things that are going to ultimately come. Therefore, verse 26, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner, inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So, tribulation such as has never been, nor ever will be. Uh, <clears throat> matter of fact, so great that if uh, uh, that that if not for the elect, this you know, like nobody would survive. So, the great tribulation that is being described here, um, nothing like it has ever happened before, and nothing like it will ever happen again. Now, part of the reason why nothing like it will ever happen again is because immediately after following those days, Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. But the point that is being made here is that there is a finite period of time, but within that period of time, judgment is coming upon the earth, ultimately to finish uh, and and bring an end 
to man's dominion uh, upon the earth, to man's rebellion against God on the earth, and ultimately to bring in and usher in uh, really the response to the prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, the millennial kingdom is the beautiful, exquisite, final, um, earthly response to that as Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. Now these, by the way, as I've mentioned before, um, these descriptions in Matthew 24 and all of the related kinds of passages that talk about eschatology, I think are to be taken at face value. I don't think they're allegorical. I don't think that um, that when we talk about Christ coming to establish his kingdom, that that somehow just speaks of heaven in some vague sort of sense. I think that we are literally looking for Christ to come. And I believe that his kingdom will be a thousand-year millennial kingdom, as the Bible says. I don't think a thousand years is just intended to mean a really long time. Why not mean a thousand years? I mean, there's no really good reason for that not to be true. Um, There's a lot of description about um, the millennial period of time. For example, uh, in Isaiah, it speaks about somebody dying at 100 years is going to seem like someone dying as an infant. In other words, the lifespans are going to go on for a very long time during that period of time. And there's lots and lots of description about the millennium. And so um, uh, not not the least of which is the fact that Satan is bound during that thousand years, during the millennial period, and then is loosed ultimately to deceive the nations, uh, giving final opportunity for people to choose whether they will follow Christ or not. And those who rebel against Christ will come with Satan against Christ in Jerusalem. Uh, So again, I take these things as the scriptures say them. Um, As we've pointed out, there are times when the Bible is clearly, I mean, very clearly speaking allegorically or metaphorically or or something to that effect. But we ought not start with the idea that that's what that must mean, just because it seems a little outside the norm. Um, So that being said, um, that's, that's my perspective. That's where I'm coming from. Now, the elect here ultimately are, are, um, are, are figuring prominently in this section of Scripture. They are those for whom the days are shortened so that there would be a group to go into the millennium. In other words, the harshness of this judgment that is coming down is such that if not for God's providential hand upon the elect, they, they themselves would be consumed by it. But of course, his hand is upon the elect, and those who survive the tribulation period will go into the millennial kingdom. There will be those who enter alive into the millennial kingdom, those who are believers in those days, getting who uh, Israel, uh, <coughs> all Israel, as Paul says, will be saved. Um, those Jews who are alive during that time will go into the millennial kingdom. Gentiles who have come to faith and have survived the wrath of Antichrist during that period of time will go into the millennial kingdom and, and that. And so there are those, the chosen ones is what the elect means there, those who have God's providential hand upon them will make it into the millennial kingdom. Now, many believers will perish during the tribulation period under the reign of Antichrist, but some will make it through. But the point of the matter is, is that the, the, the judgment that God is bringing upon the earth is so harsh and so devastating that it literally requires God's hand of protection upon some to even make it through it. And so, um, matter of fact, if you want to, uh, I always feel like I'm tooting my own horn here, but if you want to follow our study in Revelation on Sunday mornings, uh, it can be helpful because we literally just spoke about the bold judgments that are going on in this period of time that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. We spoke about it yesterday morning as we took our look at Revelation chapter 16. So I'll encourage you to, uh, that video should be posted shortly on our YouTube channel. So, okay. So, but he goes on in verse 23 and he says, then again, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ or there, uh, or later on in verse 26, look, he's in the desert or he's in the inner rooms and those kinds of things. He says, don't believe that. If there are those that are claiming to be Christ and they're sort of in hiding until the time they're going to 
make themselves known to the world. That actually just happened in Israel recently where there was discussion of somebody who might have been the Messiah. He's here, but he's sort of with the rabbis and hiding until the right time to come out. Jesus says, when that happens, don't believe it. Okay? So if you ever hear that on the news, if you ever hear that (coughs) some messianic figure is waiting to come out, don't believe it. That's not the Messiah. That that may be per, uh, a very spiritual seeming person, but that's not the Messiah. Jesus himself went on to describe what it would be like when he comes. But before that, further description of that period of time prior to his coming uh, would be as he says here and as he said first in his answering of these questions at the very beginning of the Olivet Discourse. And all three uh, gospels that record this 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 uh, this teaching record Jesus as starting with, beware that no one deceive you. Beware that no one lead you astray, mislead you. Well, here again in this passage, he goes on to say that there will be false Christs and false prophets. They'll rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Again, the elect in in view here. But so great will the deception be that, that literally anyone who is not a believer will be taken captive to these things. Matter of fact, even believers, those who are whose God's hand is upon, they would fall for it if not for God's hand upon them. Um, in in uh, Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, there is this discussion. Matter of fact, let's turn to Second Thessalonians for just a moment. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter four or uh, chapter two, I should say. I did this yesterday too. It's I, I totally wanted to turn to First Thessalonians chapter, Second Thessalonians chapter five. Anyway, so. Um, uh, let me get over there myself. I didn't actually mark the page. Normally I do that so I can get there quickly. But um, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says this toward the end of the chapter. Um, I'll just start in verse uh, verse 8 um, or verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Now, uh, I have often, in when coming across this passage, pointed out that I think who is in view here is the Holy Spirit, but particularly the Holy Spirit at work in the church and working through the church. Uh, when the church is raptured out before the man of sin is ultimately revealed to be the man of sin, I think the person will be on the scene. I think he's on the scene already, to be honest with you. Um, but when he becomes known as this global leader that we recognize as Antichrist, before he sort of assumes that role, uh, the church will be raptured away. And that's what this this restraining is all about. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Again, that's described in Revelation 19 when Christ returns. Uh, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders. Again, familiar with what we just read in Matthew, as, as Jesus himself is describing, Paul is further describing this and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So in other words, they are being deceived because they have rejected the truth. He goes on to say, I'll I'll kind of round this out in a second, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Very important passage because it tells us about the condition of the hearts of those in that period of time. They rejected the truth. They did not love the truth, but rather they enjoyed the lie. They clamored for it. They loved it. They preferred to live in that kind of a 
uh, of a of a mindset and worldview and even lifestyle as they, as grows out of that. And so, since that is where they have really committed themselves to, God just hands them over now to it. In other words, He essentially gives them what they want, and let and, and ultimately comes with that. What comes with that is the consequence. Uh, of ultimately being deceived by Antichrist, aligning themselves with him when he comes to the you know to the fore, and they ultimately will suffer the same fate that he does. Uh, it's it's terrible. It's awful. It is nothing to be celebrated, really. Uh, you know, we mentioned yesterday in, in our service that on the one hand we we do celebrate the end of sin, the the wiping out of evil and wickedness, the the righteousness of Christ's reign from the throne in Jerusalem. We we do welcome that. We do rejoice in an ending of evil and wickedness. But attached to that evil and wickedness are people. You know, people commit those deeds, and they do so because they align themselves uh, with someone other than Christ, in this case, the Antichrist. But ultimately, the spirit of Antichrist is what they are ultimately resting in and living by and that kind of thing and influenced by. And so they pay the penalty for that, that choice, for that lifestyle that they've committed themselves to, for that setting their feet against the truth and the giver of truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and instead go after the antithesis. They and they suffer the consequences of this. So, en route to them ultimately firming themselves up in that position comes in verse uh, back in Matthew twenty-four. In verse twenty-four, these false Christs and false prophets they rise up and they show great signs and wonders. Now we just read, as Paul described. Who empowers those great signs and wonders? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's there's a lot of discussion about just how, uh, you know, what Satan really can and can't do. Can Satan really do miracles, or does he just sort of manipulate the elements and all that kind of thing uh, in ways that he's permitted to? I mean, he's allowed to. He's given certain deference by God to do the things he's going to do, ultimately under the auspices of fulfilling God's ultimate purposes. But Satan does have a measure of power. Again, he can't overpower God or anything like that. But within the scope of what God is ultimately doing and accomplishing, Satan is a pawn playing a part in this. Well, Satan, you know, if if we understand the supernatural being something that circumvents the natural, I don't think it's hard to imagine how Satan would have the power to sort of do that whether it's through his own direct power or whether it's through the manipulating of, of those demonic forces at his disposal, the minions that ultimately serve him in the spiritual realm, uh, doing certain things um, to make it seem as though miracles are happening. We don't really know, maybe. You know, one day we'll maybe, as the, uh, when, we, when we are with the Lord and maybe we'll have that explained to us in some way, we'll see it for what it really was when it was happening. But, but, these seeming miracle workers are doing signs and wonders to deceive the world. And these deceptions are so legit looking that even the elect themselves would fall for them if not for the hand of God upon them and the Holy Spirit living within them. But um, the ultimate example of that, by the way, is Antichrist himself and the false prophet, who in Revelation 13 we find out, or it's described to us, that much like Paul describes, uh, they are literally empowered by Satan, the dragon, as he's described there. The dragon gives power to the beast and the second beast, the Antichrist and the false prophet, to do lying signs and wonders. Matter of fact, um, uh, the Antichrist seemingly comes back from the dead after uh, receiving a mortal wound. He ultimately ends up having an issue with his eye and his right arm in that after this event, 
uh, Zechariah tells us, but it would seem that um, he has this resurrection from the dead, and he can do incredible signs and wonders. The false prophet, also empowered by Satan, has the power to bring fire down from heaven and those kinds of things. He gives life to this image that he has the world build for the Antichrist. They, they assemble this image to, in order to worship the Antichrist, and he gives life to it. Now, you know, I, I, a lot of times we think, well, that's probably some technological thing. It's AI or something like that. And I won't totally rule that out, but I, I don't tend to think it's something as simple as AI. And the reason for that is because we're all familiar with AI. Uh, matter of fact, we are so conditioned to know the technology is so advanced that when we see something miraculous, we generally, you know, we tend to be skeptical of it because, you know, maybe it's photoshopped or a video's uh, created in such a way as to make it seem like something happened that didn't. Or maybe there's a such technology that would allow something to seem to come to life, uh, even though it's really just a technological feat, not a miraculous feat. I think we are mentally and psychologically conditioned to think that first. And because that's true, and because generally a lot of that, uh, a lot of what we see today is technologically uh, based in terms of what we're talking about here, I think that when the, uh, when the false prophet gives life to this image, it is literally going to be a miracle. It is going to be a supernatural event. Again, in some way, whether demons are manipulating something uh, or whether it's a legit miracle in some way, however that will work, I don't think it'll just be able to be explained by technology. I think that people are too sophisticated for that nowadays. And I think in a way, uh, we find ourselves in these days leading up to this where that supernatural event is literally going to blow the minds of a world that is already conditioned to be very skeptical. They will be convinced. That's how convincing this deception is. Uh, and so Jesus says, when you see these things happening and you hear these people claiming to be, notice what it is, they're claiming to be Christ. Now, that either means that they're claiming to be the second coming of Jesus himself, or they are claiming to be the expression of the Christ consciousness, or something like that. Um, they are making a claim to be connected with the divine as God's, and remember, the word Christ, or Messiah in the Hebrew, is the idea of the anointed one, God's chosen one to bring the good news and to ultimately um, you know, be God's instrument to bring mankind to him and that kind of thing. So they are claiming to be that. Um, and, and so Jesus says, when you see those things, recognize them for the deceptive thing that they are. He says, when you hear these people saying that the Christ has come, he's in the inner rooms, or, or I am the Christ and this kind of thing, don't believe it. Instead, he says, when I do come back, it's going to be like lightning flashing across the sky. Every eye will see. There will be no ambiguity about Christ's coming when he comes. And in other words, like for all of the deception that the enemy is going to bring to bear upon the world at that time, claiming to be God and all this stuff, Christ's return is going to make it absolutely clear who really is the Lord. Uh, something that Satan has no capacity to do. There's no way for him to emulate this. When Christ comes, everybody will see it. It will be shocking. It will be electrifying. It will be uh, awe-inspiring beyond anything that's ever been before. It will be an event that is unparalleled in his coming. And so he says, you'll know it's me. Trust me. When it's actually me, there will be no doubt. Don't just believe when people say, oh, I'm him. No, forget all that kind of stuff. When I come, you're going to know it. And everybody's going to know it. And everybody's going to see it. As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. As he comes, as it says elsewhere, in power and great glory. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, in verse 28, we finish with this passage, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. There's an expression I wish would kind of make a resurgence, you know. Essentially, and there's, there's you know, people are not totally sure what this sort of um, expression means, but by and large, it likely means that when you see these, in the same way that where there's a, a carcass, it's the natural thing for the vulture to show up and, and, and come after it. When you see these things coming to be, it is the natural setting for Christ to return. In other words, when these things reach their, when, the, when it happens and it comes together as I've described, it becomes the natural thing. That's when I'm going to return and establish my kingdom. Um, now, again, later in the passage, Jesus will say, nobody knows the day or the hour. And so, again, I don't think that has to do with the rapture. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this maybe at the outset of the podcast, but I think this entire passage, Matthew 24, uh, has nothing to do with the church. I think it has everything to do with Israel and those who will be around during the tribulation period to see these things, which predominantly is Israel and some Gentiles that have gotten saved along the way. Um, and those who are still alive in this period of time, immediately before Christ returns and when he returns. And so um, when these things come to their ultimate fulfillment, you see all this stuff reach its crescendo, its apex, he, uh, uh, it'll, he'll come at that time, I think is what ultimately is in view there in verse 28. So that being said, I'm going to stop there for today. And uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 29 next time we're in this passage um, in the next episode or two. And uh, uh, until then, uh, if you have any questions, thoughts, you want to share those, you can do that on our YouTube channel or on my website or on our church's website. Uh, those links are in the notes section below the video or below the audio if you're listening. And um, appreciate you watching. It's exciting to be going through these things, and especially exciting when we think about that we are on the cusp of these things beginning to unfold in their fullness. I think uh, the beginning of Daniel's 70th week is very, very near. Uh, I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is even nearer, and I think the rapture of the church is any minute. Uh, That sounds crazy, I know, but I literally live each day thinking, this might be the day. And I think we should. I think... um, The excitement and the thought of seeing him uh, is something that we should live daily in. Um, We should never be afraid that he might come today. We should look with great expectancy that he may come to snatch us away. The second coming is not any minute. That's, that's, as, as Jesus describes, there will be events taking place leading up to that. But the rapture could happen at any moment. And of course, at any moment, we might take our last breath anyway. You just never know. And so we want to be living in a constant sense and mindset and expectation that this might be the moment that I go to see him. Uh, I can't think of many things that are more purifying in the life of a believer and our thinking and our doing than the thought that we might see him any moment and the excitement of that. You know, some people think of Christ coming for them, whether it's through death or rapture, as being a frightful thing because they feel like maybe I'm not ready for such a thing. Well, if you understand grace that there's nothing you can do to earn it, it's given freely by God, all we can do is simply receive it by faith, then there's nothing you can do, per se, to kind of be ready, as it were. But on the other hand, if you're excited to see him, you want to be about his business when he comes. I want to be doing this or spending time with my family or, you know, preaching at the pulpit or something. I want, you know... um, giving a cup of cold water to somebody. You know, just, I, I want to be hand on the plow when he comes. You know, it just, uh, the thought that it could be at any second is exciting to me. It's not stressful to me. It's exciting to me. I hope it is to you too. So Father, help that to be exciting for us. We pray that, Lord, we would 
live with the daily expectation that we might see you. And Father, if there are any who are not ready for that, uh, I pray that you would cause them to search their hearts and to ask themselves why. Are they too connected to this world? Or even worse, are they not even believers? Uh, Father, if there are any among us uh, watching or listening that have never made that commitment to Christ, have come and received that free gift of salvation and grace that Christ afforded us in his finished work, dying on the cross and rising again. I pray that this would be the moment, that they would no longer resist, but they would come. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me right now. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I'm afraid of your coming, of Jesus coming, to take me away. I don't feel that I'm ready. And I realize now it's because I've never come clean before you. I've never confessed before you. I've never admitted my being a sinner. I've never been in a place that I was ready to receive your, your grace and forgiveness. But today I do. And I thank you beyond words for being so gracious to me and loving me in spite of my sin. I thank you that Jesus paid for my sins once and for all, totally, and cast them as far as the east is from the west and has made me a new creation in Christ now by faith. I receive him, I believe him, I trust him, and I look forward to seeing him. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for delivering me from the penalty of my sin. Thank you for laying before me a future and an eternity in your presence where I need not be afraid or ashamed to see you. Thank you that this is all because of what Jesus did for me. Now help me to follow you each day, growing in my relationship with you, because one day I'll get to see you face to face. Help me to learn to know you well even before that day. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to the family of God, if you prayed that, by the way. And by the way, there's, there's, we are joking yesterday as well, and not joking, but we are mentioning uh, yesterday that there's really not a lot of, like, quote-unquote, sinner's prayers in the Bible and that kind of thing. There's just people coming to belief when they hear the good news and they believe it. Um, and we're saved by faith. We receive that which is true uh, about the finished work of Christ, about who he is as God in the flesh, uh, about our, our, our only capacity to be saved is because of what he did for us. And we receive that by faith, and therefore we receive the grace of God by faith. Um, and so, you know, it's not, there's nothing magical about the words I share when we pray a prayer like that. It's just simply a way to help you express your putting your trust in Christ. But it's really all about the fact that you do believe in Christ. And so whether you prayed that prayer with me or whether you just on your own have come to realize that, yes, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for my sins and rose from the dead. I do believe that my only way to be saved is by faith in him and him alone. Um, Then you are saved and you are in the hands of God. And thankfully, as Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so... Welcome to God's family. It's so great that you're here and there's a seat at the table for you. So praise the Lord. And we just, again, want to encourage you to walk by faith, study the word of God, get to know God well in these days because we're living in the final days of man's history. And so that being said, we're going to see him soon. Be excited. Look forward to it. Live a life of expectancy. So God bless you. Thanks again for watching. And we will catch up with you next time.